0: Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. Coming to you from Millbog Manor Studios, I'm here with my engineer, Jason Harris. Our music was created for us by Jonathan Harmon, and I'm your host, Dylan Rory. Today's episode is brought to you by Dr. Hump's Spa and Libido Rejuvenation Retreat. If the doctor's not in, someone will be. And we are thrilled to welcome back former sponsor Aunt Martha's Home C-Section Kits. Aunt Martha, she'll bring out the kid in you. Today's guest is an artist, author, collector, curator, and fan of all things pop culture. Today, she runs one of the best and oldest of the mini boutique video companies, Something Weird Video. Founded in 1990 by her late husband, Mike Franey, Something Weird still operates in its home base of Seattle, Washington. Dave Friedman, now there's a name that's come up on this show a time or two, partnered with Rainey to distribute his own movies through the company. A partnership that soon developed into a friendship and helped build the company into one of the leading catalogers and distributors of exploitation and obscure cinema in the entire world. They currently have over 3,000 titles available in their library, and that number continues to grow. From sexploitation movies of pre-code Hollywood, to soundtrack albums, to high definition transfers of old one reel peep show booth movies. Something Weird continues to collect and preserve the movies that would otherwise be forgotten. More recently, they have been begun partnering with companies like the American Genre Film Association to release rarely and in one case possibly never-before-seen films like Ed Wood's Take It Out in Trade and the first porn parody, 1970-something's Bat Pussy. And yes, we're going to be talking about that one. If you know this sound... Not coming?
1: No. <laughs> I
0: tried my best. You know what? I'll fix that in post. If you know that sound, then you know that I'm talking to Something Weird Video CEO, Lisa Petrucci. Hi
1: there. Hi.
0: <laughs> oh, I tried so hard.
1: <laughs> hey, that's happens.
0: <laughs> Hi, Lisa. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks great. for having me.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I have so many things I want to talk to you about. But first, let's just talk about you. Um, you grew up in Massachusetts in the suburbs.
1: Yes, I did. In um, an area called the North Shore, if you're from out there. Yes. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was that like, that childhood?
1: Well, I don't really talk too much about my childhood because it it was pretty traumatic. I was raised Jehovah's Witness, believe it or not. And maybe that explains a lot why I'm so eccentric now and into like things of the complete opposite of what they believe, Uh, but also, you know, just came from a very strange household and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But the great thing that happened when I was a kid was that I got taken to the drive-in and that pretty much set me on the uh, path to where I am now.
0: You remember the first movie you saw at the drive-in?
1: Well, I can remember the first traumatic movie I saw at the drive-in. Perfect. <laughs> which was, we, um, we
0: love talking about those.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and which I mean, you don't bring a kid to go see Night of the Living Dead, and <laughs> there I am in the back seat. You know, my mom's there with her boyfriend at the time, and you know, assuming that I'm asleep in the back seat, and there was no way. I mean, first of all, I'm at the movie, so I want to watch whatever's on the screen, but sure. i my, you know tiny little child mind, couldn't really handle what I was seeing. So, <laughs> but uh, it definitely <laughs> left a lasting impression on me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and you know, a few years later, you know, we, they kept going to the drive-in and taking, you know, little kid to inappropriate movies like Corpse Grinders, Undertaker, <laughs> Vows, you know, Barbarella, <laughs> you know, name it, I saw it. So yeah, I, I guess I got my start as a genre film fan pretty young
0: that's no, not that's pretty cool. Uh, I'd always credit a good trauma with kind of setting me on the the course that I went on. So, uh, yeah, I, I like those those first trauma movies, the ones that you watch that really are not trauma, excuse me, trauma movies, the ones that really knock you for a loop, but then you find them again years later to watch again.
1: Oh, yeah, there's definitely that nostalgia thing because like, I mean obviously you have a childhood memory associated with it. and mm-hmm. I mean, even movies I never got to see because I was too young, um you know, th- things like Bloodfeast or whatever, like you'd hear kids talking about those movies like, oh, you know, my my you know family went to the drive-in and we saw this movie and they'd describe it, and you'd be imagining it in your heads. and, you know, so it there's it's really neat to like, you know, when those things became available on home video, it'd be like, Oh my god, that's that movie, you know, that I heard about when I was a kid or whatever. Yeah. So
0: oh, that's great. So at what point did you realize that you liked drawing? I know you you've said before that early on you were you were drawing the cartoons you watched and things like yeah.
1: that. Yeah. Well, my father was a pretty well-known illustrator. His name was Sam Bertucci. And um he, was you a, know, he, he did
0: commercial art.
1: He did commercial art, yes, and Mm -hmm. he did graphic design and logos and illustration and package design and Mm -hmm. for for a lot of really familiar and well-known things that are still even out there um, today. I mean, I probably like the the thing that made the biggest impression on me as a kid was that he worked for Hasbro Toys and did a lot of the board games and packaging and for things like Mr. Potato Head But the coolest part was that, you know, when he was working for Hasbro, he would sit in on some of the, you know, creative meetings. And one day he just said to those guys, you know, my son's playing with his sister's dolls and like, you guys need to come up with a doll for boys. And a week later, the prototype for G.I. Joe, you know, got brought to a meeting. So (laughs) he likes to say that it was his idea, but, you know, a lot of people claim that over the years. So, yeah, just growing up around an illustrator and especially one that, worked with a lot of pop cultural images. Um, You know, of course I wanted to be an artist too when I was, you know, with my crayons and, you know colored pencils and whatever as a kid. And I spent a lot of time in his office when I was there um, you know, on the weekends and stuff. So I'd watch him painting and I'd be sitting on the floor with my art supplies obviously trying to copy what he was doing but it made a huge impression on me and You know, throughout my life, I've always drawn stuff that I was, you know, interested in. Like, you know, I used to read comic books, so I draw like Archie, you know, comics-inspired characters, or Mm Kimba the White Lion, or um, Wonder Woman, all all types of, you know, Pippi Longstocking, things that were important part of my childhood. I do drawings of those things, as well as, you know, lots of little girls love to draw animals and, you know, fairy princesses and all that kind of stuff too.
0: Yeah. So when you're You're sitting around drawing these things. You're kind of just being a pop culture sponge, it sounds like, Uh, just taking in all the things that are bright and shiny and around you, Um, and then having that kind of, it sounds like almost direct access to a place like Hasbro, which I don't think there's a kid around who doesn't know something from Hasbro. Oh, yeah. Uh, having, Having that stuff, just soaking that into yourself, how does that... Affected who you are as an adult today.
1: Well, um, the interesting thing was like you know, and when I decided to go to art school, um, I was taking studio art classes, but I was majoring in art history. So <laughs> I was getting more involved with the academic side of things. And um, you know, this is a, I, I always like to tell this story. You know, my father was, was such a well-known artist, and he was really pretty um, impressed with himself to say the least. And <laughs> you know, I remember when I told him I was going to go to art school, he's like, "You don't have enough talent." I mean, who tells a kid that first of all, right? And it was almost like I went on a mission to like prove him wrong. But, you know, the first few years that I was, um, you know, in college, I I thought, well, maybe I should just be like pursuing this from like, you know, an art history point of view or like learning as much as I can. And so when I graduated from school, that was what my background was. And I mean, I was interested in like early 20th century art, you know, mainly in Germany during the Weimar period and things like that. So, um, but I was also like to do my own art at the time. And, you know, I was kind of doing it more for fun than for like, you know, thinking I was gonna have a professional career with it. So Mm -hmm. my earlier paintings, like when I was still in college were kind of fashion illustration oriented but they were really large scale. And there was a lot of Neo expressionism happening Mm -hmm. at that time. This was in the mid 1980s. Um, So, you know, I, I was kind of going in that direction with my art, but it was, in the late 1990s, I mean, I realized that I was looking like at so many comic books from my childhood and being attracted to a lot of like mid-century design um, type things like, you know, illustration styles, kids books, uh, packaging, um, and really gravitated to very colorful kind of pop art um, imagery that my art kind of started going in that direction. And then I also like started incorporating things that I was just interested in like, you know, film or um, television characters or, you know, just th- things that were were not like, um, you know, current, they were more yeah. like, you know, from my childhood and mm-hmm. my, you know, what I remember, you know, nostalgically. So um, that was kind of the beginning of the type of art that people are familiar with when it relates to me. So
0: Yeah, I've, I've looked at a lot of your pieces and um, aside from the obvious pop culture stuff, there's also... Uh, a lot of influence from the movies that something weird has uh, saved and distributed there's uh, a couple shefreed pieces um I believe you have Batgirl on a hippity hop which oh yeah I got that was Applecy. pretty awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I called it bouncing bat doll that way it, like, you know people wouldn't really because I mean a lot of the characters that I you know I do in my art are based on dolls and especially yeah. like little kittle dolls from the 1960s so mm-hmm. um I figured well that, that kind of gives it a more general you know I mean the, the inside joke is there if anybody's like you know that tuned in but yeah. otherwise you know it's not going to offend anybody <laughs> if you've got a little girl on a hippie hop <laughs> they don't know where she's going
0: so you went to uh what three different schools for art you started at boston and then from yeah. there oh go okay. ahead yeah oh yeah well
1: i went to the art institute of boston um mm-hmm. right when i graduated from high school because i you know i was going to pursue graphic design and Um, I was also working full-time, and I realized that I just wanted to go to school full-time, so I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to a place called Bradford College, which doesn't even exist anymore. It was a small liberal arts college um, in northern Massachusetts, and um, that's where I studied art history and, um, you know, started my painting stuff, but then when I moved to New York City, when I was working for art galleries, um, I just started doing, you know, some graduate studies on the side and never really got very far with it, just because it it was pretty much more just to keep my chops active (laughs) i guess in some ways you know that i was like staying on top of like whatever critical theories were happening in art at the time and whatnot but i realized that it wasn't really that advantageous for me professionally to keep spending money to go to school because basically it's like you learn by doing
0: yeah yeah
1: so but um nope that's that was pretty i mean people will ask like oh well you know how do you become an artist and it's like the schooling part means very little it has more to do with just like being observant and like super aware of like you know what's going on around you and just practicing and developing your skills and you know definitely finding a voice for yourself as well and i don't think you can learn any of that in you know in an academic setting
0: so when you are let me think how to phrase this you're at these schools and The kind of art that you're doing, I just, my late wife was an artist. And I know for her, um, uh, thank you, Uh, I know for her, uh, she would always get a little bit of grief when she started moving toward pop art and things like that in art school. Is that something that you were dealing with as well?
1: Oh, there was definitely kind of a snobbish attitude. I mean, when Mm -hmm. the galleries that I was working in, you know, we're, we're very like conceptually oriented and, um, you know, whatever was like the latest art theories and it wasn't about like that kind of visual dy- dynamism as I'd like to say or just, you know, mm-hmm. eye candy. Um, yeah. So when I started making this work, I you know I was, you know, working at a gallery where like there was like, you know, cubes in the middle of it and stuff and having to explain <laughs> to people like, oh, this means, you know, some big heady thing. Um, so living in New York city and making pop inspired art, I was like a unicorn. So at one point I just decided that, you know, I was better off on the West coast because the lowbrow art movement and pop surrealism was starting to happen. And Mm -hmm. um, I just knew that I'd probably feel more at home there. And that's when I, you know, ventured out to the West coast.
0: And so where did that take you?
1: Well, I was living in New York city. Um, The funny thing was I had, already been like aware of something weird video and like about two years before i actually moved i had been in touch with mike franey from something weird video about interviewing him for some magazines because the other thing i was doing as well as making art was writing about pop culture i realized that as of you know an art and film historian because i did kind of when i was doing my art history i got pretty deep into film as well Mm -hmm. Uh, i you know got in touch with with him when he was in I'm New Jersey at a chiller theater convention and was like, Hey, can I interview you and Dave Friedman? You know, I'm doing an article about sexploitation cinema. And at that time, not very many people knew what that was. I mean, it's just assumed, Oh, it's old porn. And it's like, well, it's actually not. (laughs) Um, and I was also like kind of learning about it myself then because, you know, the first few VHS tapes that were out there Mm -hmm. from something weird were sexploitation films that had never been available on home video. So, um, you know I met Mike and we you know hit it off you know, as friends and you know, he was definitely intrigued by this young woman who's like way into film as much as he is. Um, but I was also like still doing my art career and realizing well, I'm probably gonna need to, you know, be someplace else to, if I want to do this as a career. And, um, Mike mentioned that, oh, well, you know, you could always come to Seattle. I was like, well, you know, I think I'm going to actually move to LA, which I did for about six months. And it was in, it was in 93 and right before the Northridge oh, quake
0: and, yeah, you know, yeah. being
1: from the East coast and never being in an, uh, earthquake before. And, um, just the, the practicality of living in Los Angeles without a car it was like yeah. I don't want to be here and you know so um you know a few months later I was up in Seattle and you know living with Mike and we had just started you know I just started working with something weird video around uh-huh. then so well, but, that's... Yeah, that, that, that's how my art career took me to the west coast <laughs>
0: very cool yeah I, I had read that you were in inter- that you met Mike by interviewing him so I, I was wondering what that was for so that you were just doing some Was it just spec work for different magazines, or were you working on a contract with any?
1: No, I was. I mean, basically, there was a few, you know, magazines at the time. One was called Access. Um, I used to work, um, do some stuff for Greg Theakston who did the Betty Pages. Um, He published a magazine called Tease for a while. Um, there was another magazine out of San Diego called Access. Um, So I was, you know, definitely like like just doing some very fringy (laughs) articles and things that not very (laughs) many people were seeing, but it was opportunities for me to, you know, come up with a a writing style Mm -hmm. and to get my voice out there. Um, And which, you know, ended up me working with something weird and writing lots of reviews and, you know, becoming a a genre film historian in my own right that way. So,
0: It it was the '90s were kind of an interesting time for that, where um, I think that our generation were all kind of growing up now and looking back and saying, "Wait, there was some real treasure back there. What happened to it?" Um, Internet, the The rebirth of the sideshow and things like that was happening then, um, especially in the early '90s. But um, with with the advent of places like Something Weird. Being able to find, like, like you say, it was hard to find a movie like Blood Feast. Um, you know, it, it, if it was on video, it was a copy of a copy of a copy that you got from a friend, you know. Um, so to have someplace that was actually curating this stuff with some care didn't exist until then. Yeah, um, we were
1: really fortunate. I mean, like in the 90s, so many great video stores opened in like major cities. Mm-hmm. And depending like where you're from regionally, everybody can like name one, you know, if yeah. you're into this kind of stuff. And, you know, for me living in New York city, Kim's video was the go-to place. And that was yeah. my introduction to something weird video as well. I mean, I was you know watching a lot of exploitation films at the time, mm-hmm. but you know, some of it I, I was familiar with, but other stuff was like brand new. And, you know, especially when you saw these, you know, VHS mm-hmm. tapes on the shelf that were like garishly colored and lurid looking it's like what is that i need to see that and yeah and then you know it's like that a whole new world opened up to me
0: yeah i i remember the first time i saw anything from something weird it was at a video store in bloomington indiana called plan nine video
1: i remember that uh, one (laughs) yeah
0: it was a great store it doesn't exist anymore but they do have a new store down there called vulture video which is pretty sweet um, they they That's uh, are also doing a lot of genre film there, but I remember seeing that, uh, at, you know, and sadly, I don't remember what movie it was, but I saw that it was from something called Something Weird, and that caught my eye, and then I got a catalog from there, the old print black and white catalog. I yeah. still have it, actually. I still have that catalog. Um, and, you know, it was just fascinating to me that there were other people in the world who were as obsessed with this weirdness that I was. So, you know, it was kind of a little validating moment too.
1: (laughs) Well, it's nice. It was kind of like, you know, a one stop shopping for, you know, bizarre films. Mm -hmm. And, you know, something weird became like a really great umbrella because the catalog itself is so eclectic. It's like, you can't really say there's like one type of films that, you know, something weird represented. It was Mm -hmm. like all different types. I mean, from family friendly stuff to like, you know, the filthiest porn available. (laughs) Yeah something for everyone
0: <laughs> that's just lovely um, so when you and you and Mike met obviously sparks were flying immediately um, at what point did you guys then you said you you ended up moving in with him pretty early on when you headed to, to Seattle uh, when did you guys get married
1: okay so we we met in 93 I moved to mm-hmm. Seattle in 94 um, and we were together, you know, for until 1999 before we actually got married. Oh, so okay. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, Mike had been previously married two different times before that. Mm-hmm. So third time a charm.
0: Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was your learning curve when you were going into this? You, you knew it was something that you liked and and you definitely uh, had an affinity for. What was your learning curve when it came to the actual business side of it?
1: Well, early on, I mean, that my involvement was something where it was always research and graphic design and just kind of developing the look of the company. So wow. um, I was... I was pawing through thousands and thousands of press kits and still photos and one sheet posters and really just trying to like absorb as much visual information as I could. And also, you know, as I'd open up a press kit, it's like read everything you can about a lost movie. Because at that time, you know, in the early 90s, there was still hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of. You know, movies that are available now that weren't then. So we were all learning, you know, yeah. there was very few people. I mean, like, obviously people have their areas of expertise, but it's when, where this stuff is concerned, especially mm-hmm. the 60s exploitation, um, like it, it was, it was like new <laughs> to yeah. Mike as well as me. And I mean, we were in, ended up getting a lot of information from, you know, the kind of old coots that Mike used to work with, like Dave Friedman and Harry mm-hmm. Novak and, Joe Sarno and um, you know, people who were actually involved in the business back then and just trying to get as many stories and information as possible. So, um, and I feel really grateful that, you know we were doing this at that time because there was no, I mean the internet, it was just in its infancy in the early early Mm -hmm. to mid nineties. And you really had to do like the legwork to do research and like actually find, you know people who were involved with it or materials related to the films and then try to piece together what you thought was history. Cause it's funny like reading those earlier catalogs. I mean, there's so many mistakes that, you know, are embarrassing now, but at the time sure. nobody knew anything. So um I would say for all of us, we were learning as we were going. Yeah. And you know, and each of us brought something to the table. I mean Mike had his, you know, strengths, I had my strengths. We worked a lot with Frank Hennenlauter, who, you know, mm-hmm. not just being an incredible film director, he's like probably one of the most knowledgeable he's cinephiles. An
0: encyclopedia. Of, absolutely obscure yes. films I mean it's nudie amazing. cootie he's like the guy to go to for nudie cutie information and things like that oh, I know he holds them
1: in such disdain but he knows so much about them. <laughs> <laughs> no he loves his nudie cuties yeah <laughs> he says they're the stupidest oh, this, movies oh, ever made <laughs> yeah
0: oh yeah I've seen interviews with her
1: they're just dumb yeah yep.
0: <laughs> Uh, we had Bill Rabane on here, and he actually talked about um, some of the work he did on them with Herschel Gordon Lewis early on. Um, and Jack Hill also, I think, was involved with some of those in the very early days of those, um, just to some, you know, some degree of they're just helping each other out when they were all young filmmakers and stuff. and um yeah they were they, both of them just talked about it being you know yeah you just you found an excuse for a guy to look at a naked woman and you filmed it
1: that was yeah much i know it. it didn't have to be anything to, especially in the you know in the earlier days of like you know um the nudie cuties and even like well starting with the the burlesque and the nudist films it's like mm-hmm. you know that that was the only legal way you could see a stark naked woman in a theater but right. there was still like you know all kinds of rules and regular, like, you know, can't show any farnel nudity, yeah. um, it's just, you know, boobs and butts and, um, you know, in, in the early 60s, it was just like, well, you can show that stuff as long as no men are touching those women. Well, I- you know, it was more <laughs> that kind of voyeuristic, you know, peeping Tom themes yeah. to all those movies. And you know, it wasn't until the mid 60s that you start to see simulated sex scenes. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's uh, but nudie cuties definitely have a charm of their own. Well,
0: that, the very, what, what's considered the first porn film, the silent uh, film, I can't even think of the name, it's a French title, but it's its a man watching a woman through a dressing screen, change her clothes, and um, yeah, it's it basically a nudie cutie, it's a tale yeah. of all this time.
1: <laughs> well, you can, I mean, I always tell people it's like, you know, pornography or just, you know, a nudity in film has been around since the, you know, first week that they learned how to like maybe (laughs) film something you know of course they're going to do that
0: (laughs) that and there was that time and it was thankfully short-lived where they could they could show sexuality of some sort so long as they also showed the results so you would have probably like a soft core porn for the most part there was never really any penetrative sex on the on film so long as then they showed an actual birth
1: Oh, the birth of the baby films. Well, well, what's interesting about those was that, um, you know, that was a phenomenon that happened in the late 40s through Mm -hmm. early 50s, and it was on post-World War II type thing, and, um, you know, they were supposed to be educational films. They didn't Uh, actually have any porn. I mean, the only porn you actually, I mean, you got to see a a lady's vagina, but a baby was coming out of it. So it's not very sexy.
0: (laughs) And then, uh, so for the, did that change and there's so many different things to look at that can tell you where that switch started to happen in the '60s. For me, I think it was probably "Teenage Mother," where they they really started making that switch to pure sex exploitation and the guise of education.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's a good example of that. And yeah, the the interesting thing too is like in the late '60s, early '70s, before you know the you know, golden age of hardcore pornography. I mean, Mm -hmm. you could still, like there were marriage manual movies that they called white (laughs) coders. And those were pretty much like mom and dad in the, you know, uh, because of Eve of their time, (laughs) except (laughs) that people were actually like copulating on the film. And then, you know, they, they were either teaching you to be a, a better lover for your husband or wife or, you know, how to, how to prevent pregnancy or whatever. So right. yeah, I mean, just put it under the, with a, like a fake doctor in between all of the different segments, which is fantastic.
0: Uh, we bounce around here. So obviously okay. I, I can, I could follow a rabbit hole anywhere.
1: Like my brain. <laughs>
0: But I have to ask about Dave Friedman. Um, He's a fascinating character to me. Um, You know, the work he did with Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, notwithstanding just the the work he also did on his own independently. What was he like as a person?
1: He, oh, okay. So Mike and I spent more time with Dave Friedman in person and on the phone than we did with our own dads. (laughs) He was basically (laughs) like our father in so many ways. He was an incredible person to me, not just you know, a wellspring of information and just fascinating, you know, professionally. I mean, he was just such a character and, you know, he had his finger in so many pies. I mean, you know, the guy had been involved in like circuses and carnivals since he was a little kid. Yeah. And then, you know, he worked for Paramount for years. He worked for Kroger Bab, And um, that was all before, you know, him getting together with Herschel Gordon Lewis and then starting to produce movies together. So, mm. I mean, he, really just was there at like you know almost in all like aspects of the infancy of exploitation film Mm -hmm. you know other than like I mean he was too little to be in any Dwayne West you know be around Dwayne Esper although if you (laughs) you hear any commentaries from him he acts like yeah he he was there too So, um, but no he was he was wonderful he was larger than life and just always so giving of his time you know to everybody I mean if you talk to any fans who've met him at conventions it's like you know they could just sit down and like talk with him for like you know an hour or something mm-hmm. it wasn't like he wasn't there to just get you know his money and autographs in fact like we'd have to tell him at conventions like you really do have to like they, they expect you to char- no 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 or just telling david's like you have to charge them at least a dollar for that picture you can't just give it to them because you know? yeah. <laughs> it's like you know the convention people would be telling us that yeah. um but no he would just he loved you know just you know Regaling everybody with stories, and um, he had so many awesome sayings and things that you know. Like even now, like I repeat his words all the time. Like you know, it's kind of like I channel him.
0: <laughs> what, what's, an, what's an example of that? Oh,
1: he always talks about the sack of flour. And like anybody who's read any of the like films about you know Dan Sonny, his
0: mm-hmm.
1: his mentor and partner, and his father Louis Sunny, um, there was this expression that like you know, it's like a sack of flour. It's like you know the so even though there doesn't seem to be anything left, it's like the more you shake it out, you know, a little bit more comes out, which <laughs> is like what they mean about the money. So it's like right. the films were released, you know, back in the day, and then they just kept getting new life in different mm-hmm. formats, whether it be like, you know, a re-release in the theaters in the midnight movie circuit, you know, that would have been yeah. in the 70s. And then in, you know, the VHS days when things started to go on home video and mm-hmm. then, you know, DVD, Blu-ray streaming. I mean, there's just... There's always going to be opportunities to exploit these films, and sure. you know, maybe not making as much money, but still, hey, it's it's still dribbling out.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's a fascinating guy. I, I never got to meet him, uh, but I've, I've read a lot and uh, I've, I've seen The Sack of Flower come up more than once. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah exactly. <laughs> and,
1: uh, I'm sure you read his book, A Youth in Babylon. Yes. Have you read that? Yes. yes. And um, I mean, that's pretty much like the definitive history of that time period yeah. of, you know, exploitation film. And sadly, I mean, we've you know, this has come up like, because people knew that he had written a second part to it um, that mm-hmm. started with him working for dan sunny and sunny amusement enterprises and was mm-hmm. supposed to go all the way up to like you know the late 70s early 80s when you know he kind of got out of the business because it was just heading more towards porn and he said right. it wasn't fun anymore but he um sadly lost most of the book oh which is i mean we're talking an over a thousand page book yeah. um, that was at a publisher they sent it back to him because they said it was too long he was supposed to re-edit it and he just, I mean, I don't know, he said it, it just vanished, but I Mm. can't see how that could happen because I mean, Mike and I ended up with every, you know, slip of paper that he had (laughs) after he passed away. And I, believe me, I looked through everything that we did um, find three chapters. And those actually were chapters he had sent us early on just to get Mike's and my opinion about, Mm. you know, like where edits should happen. There should be no edits as far as I'm concerned. So, My plan is to eventually start publishing um, some books, and that'll be one, you know, part of that. Um, Awesome. Chapters that he did out there is probably his individual books because there's so much accompanying visual materials that, Mm -hmm. you know, people would love to see that stuff. And just, you know, his voice in these books and, you know, anytime he does any writing is just, it's so engaging. I mean, people just love listening to Dave Friedman, whether he's talking on a commentary or, Mm -hmm. you know, what he's written. So. Yeah, I miss, I miss him terribly. I mean, he, he was, you know, a member of my family. And, you know, I between him and Mike, I mean, I pretty much do stuff every day to, like, keep their legacies alive, <laughs> so.
0: That's lovely. That's great. So tell me a little bit about Mike.
1: Oh, wow. I don't even know where to begin. So, all right, before Mike did something weird video, um, he, when he was a younger guy, like in his te- late teens and early 20s, he was a comic book dealer, so that was. I mean, I should preface all of this by saying Mike never had a real job in his whole life. You know, <laughs> I mean, not one where he dream. worked for the man. I know, the <laughs>
0: dream. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think so. Anyway, absolutely. Um, but but um, he was also into music, and in the late '70s, um, he and some of his friends had like opened a venue here in Seattle called the uh, Showbox Theater, and it had been like a former bingo hall dance Mm -hmm. hall kind of place and it was all run down and, but it was a really large, you know, stage and they had like one of those springboard floors, I guess it was for the ballroom dancing and so it was really cool. (laughs) But, um, they started doing punk rock shows, um, around that time. And they started a company called modern productions was exactly still around. Um, It's run by the same people he was involved with back then, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Um, but, while he was doing that, um, the Dead Kennedys had come to Seattle and I guess that he hit it off with them really, really well. And they were like, hey, would you want to manage us? And it ended up that he and his wife at the time moved down to San Francisco and mm-hmm. were, started managing them and some other um, you know, bands from the Bay Area. And he was involved with starting Alternative Tentacles. Yeah. So back in those days. And eventually he ended up moving to Los Angeles and managing TSOL and um, a few other LA uh, punk rock bands mm-hmm. until about the mid 80s. And then he decided to come back to Seattle around 86. So okay. yeah, so around that time, um, you know, he probably did have to get a real job. I don't know what it was. Oh no, he was he was working with a friend of his at a place called Time Travelers, which was a comic book store, skate shop, um, kind of, you know, cool kid hangout, mm-hmm. um, downtown Seattle. And when he had been in LA, prior to that, um, he had broken his foot trying to skateboard. Mike was not a very athletic person, so I was actually surprised he even tried to skateboard. <laughs> and um, when he we was all, laid we up. We all yeah. did at that time. I guess so. <laughs> we all tried. <laughs> a funny story is that you know he was laid up, and one of his friends, Larry Hardy, um, he said, "Hey, I got a VCR you can borrow." And Mike, it you know, was never a very technologically oriented person. He's like, "Well, okay, I can watch movies with that thing." He's like, "Yeah." He goes, "And you can record movies with that thing." And you know, Larry says, "Yeah." And Mike got the idea to just start recording stuff off a of TV that wasn't available on home. Because I mean, you know, obviously in the mid '80s, there wasn't that much available on home video. Yeah. Um, and they you kind know, of started you know his bootleg piracy career
0: <laughs> in the early in,
1: in the early to mid 80s and you know put out ads in fanzines and you know mm-hmm. had things in local you know, video rental shops and stuff so i mean you know the, the things that you would see on television you know mm-hmm. like movies that should shouldn't have been on home video but you know if they were on tv and somebody took the time to record them i mean unless somebody's like you know policing all of these what? you know trade publications nobody would know although you know over the years he and his cronies did all get hit up with cease and desist from universal and places like that like <laughs> hey you can't sell this yourself you know so unfortunately you know there wasn't any lawsuits or anything but yeah. he had a little bit of a life lesson there so yeah that that's kind of the, the beginning of something weird video um mm-hmm. but not as we know it like around 1990 was when something weird video started to go in the direction that we all know it now mm-hmm. so
0: and he was a film projectionist too right
1: yes he was he so that was the, the only the only other times he actually like kind of had a job was He'd work as a projectionist in porn theaters, and mm-hmm. that wasn't an work to him. That was fun. So, sure. yeah. <laughs> and um, what I loved about that, you know, I found out in retrospect, is the first few 35 millimeter films that he had found when he you know was starting to take something weird a little bit more seriously. As far as mm-hmm. wow, I need to actually go find films and you know scan those and mm-hmm. put them out on on video. Um, he didn't know how to do that exactly yet, so. He would screen um, 35 millimeter prints of you know movies like The Sin Syndicate and Smell a Honey, Swallow a Brine at like the Apple Theater in Seattle, and he would film them from the audience. And then, like, put it on a on a you know VHS tape and sell those. And the funniest part is, like, you know, I guess it was good enough for the time. I mean, a lot of us would just watch anything sure. just to be able to see it. Yeah. Um, but hilarious watching like you know heads walking by and you know <laughs> hearing people in the audience you know and and I still have all of those. I mean, they're, they're oh, precious. <laughs> that's
0: great. That's great. So I imagine when you meet somebody with passion like that for something, anything, whatever that passion is, it becomes infectious.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, I I just never really, like, had met somebody who was into the same stuff that I was as much as he was, Mm -hmm. and also having someone who encouraged, you know, we just encouraged each other to, like, you know, be our best selves, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I loved about Mike was, you know, he, you know, when when you're a young woman in your 20s, and, like, you you at that point you're still kind of insecure and in figuring things out and whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully more, more and more young women aren't feeling that way. But, in, you know, when I was growing up, I certainly did. And mm-hmm. just to have somebody support you and also be as passionate about something as you are, it's, you know, that's really hard to find. It so, is. I mean, I'm so grateful that, you know, we met each other at that time in our lives because we were ready for that. And, you know, we ended up being together for over 20 years. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely, that um, there was a lot of adventures to be had over the years between, you know, meeting all of these, you know, legendary exploitation film people and Mm -hmm. doing conventions with them and, you know, doing business with them and stuff. I mean, it'll all go in a book someday.
0: I can't wait. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that.
1: So what was the moment like
0: when some treasure came in some, a movie that was either thought was lost or that you never even knew existed. And it, it, It's to you guys. What was that moment like?
1: Well, a good way to describe, to start describing that would be like, you know, in the beginning, Mike didn't really even know what he was looking for Mm -hmm. because obviously, like, (sighs) especially with 60s exploitation cinema, like there really weren't any guides out there, or, you know, you, you could learn about things by looking at the American film distributors catalog. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks like, what is this title? Let me look it up if it's in there. And then if you saw certain words, like that, made it sound like, oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> and it would grab it, but, um, <laughs> it was when he and Frank Henenlotter, and, you know, via Dave Friedman, cause he, Dave Friedman got a tip that there was a warehouse in, you know, the New York area that had been, um, kind of the depository for movie lab and bonded films and that you know it had been abandoned. So mm-hmm. Dave was like, you know, if you know, here you, you, hey you kid kid, he's always call us kid. Um, you you can you know you probably go there and like slip the guy some money and he will let you like grab some films, which the guy did, who was the security guard. But Mike didn't even know what he was looking for back then. So uh-huh. Um, he and Frank Lauder were just like, you know, parring over the, the titles and like, oh, how does this one sound? And they just grabbed a bunch of stuff and then did the research later. And then were mm-hmm. thrilled to find out like, you know, Curious Dr. Hump or yeah. um, you know, Monster Camp Sunshine and all of these, you know, bl- even films like Bloody Pit of Horror, like mm-hmm. the negatives for those films were in this depository. So wow. that was kind of the, the beginning of like realizing that there were rare lost films that, um, you know, that needed to be you know preserved and found and preserved you can't preserve unless you can find them so um, and fortunately um after that experience that same uh, movie lab collection went up for auction i mean they i guess that whoever owned the building had posted you know just to let people know that like there's you know there could be an auction and this stuff's been abandoned if you need to grab anything it was yours you know i guess nobody did because you know he ended up with like two cargo containers full of films being Wow. Shipped out to to the West Coast because um, Mike had gone in on a partnership with somebody else um, to get those films. So mm-hmm. um, that really opened our eyes to like how much was actually out there. But you know, the, but then there were other opportunities where like you know, obviously Dave Friedman let Mike have access to his you know yeah. films, and like most of those were unfamiliar. But you know, a lot of people know the story about you know the first time Mike goes to Cordova Street to the Friedman Vault, the, well, the Sunny Amusement Vault um and he's looking in there and and he's like what's this thing called space thing and dave's like oh that's the worst science fiction movie ever made and mike's like well can i can i take it you know to try it?" and he's like why would you want to and he's like well just i think people would want to see it you know and it ended up being like you know one of dave freeman's greatest hits (laughs) yeah Yeah. so but um also you know when um Dave Friedman's partner, um, Dan Sunny, who mm-hmm. his you know his father was Louis Sunny, from Sunny Amusement Enterprises, all of their films had been deposited at UCLA Film Archives, and Mike was able to get access to those films um, early on. So like the the big you know the first really huge um, release that something weird had were those Betty Page movies, Teaserama mm-hmm. and Varieties, which came you know from that collection, and so it, that kind of you know gave Mike the idea that there's gonna be some really important titles out there that we may come across and to just be aware of what some of them might be. And, you know, a few years later, we found Stripperama, which was the other Betty Page movie and Mm -hmm. actually quote had her talking, but it wasn't her voice. Right, (laughs) Um, right. And, um, you know, and and especially that, like I said, the movie lab collection with all of the negatives of abandoned films, there were so many treasures that came out of there. It really defined what something weird was gonna be doing for decades, so. Mm-hmm.
0: What would make his eyes light up? You'll have to wait until next time to find out what made Mike's eyes light up because that's in part two. What a great love story though. There really is something magical about finding someone who shares your weird passion, encourages it. I hope that all of you find someone like that in your life and if not, you'll find that soon. They're out there. Until next time, get out in the world. I went to a movie theater for the first time in over four years, and it was rejuvenating. As the world continues to open up and you do get back out there, take care of your servers. Because at the Walter Peasley Movie House, we don't piss on hospitality. As always, thanks for listening. I'll peep you later.